Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and since there were a number of things that Solomon is going over in this chapter, that we would probably need to cover the chapter. There's a number of different things that he addresses here. You know, with some of the things that Solomon has expressed beforehand, of all the vanity that he sees and all the things that he points out that are done under the sun and the folly of man and wisdom and all of this, at a, many of the times he, he usually ends with some, some type of a, a, a word of hope. <laughs> uh, he doesn't really do that in this chapter. He doesn't, he doesn't take us to some of those uh, reminders of, of eating and drinking before the Lord and in the Lord, being able to enjoy the, the, to, the tolls of your labor and all of that. He doesn't really take us there. This chapter is really, uh, it's, it's somewhat dark. Uh, some would maybe even consider it to be a little depressing with some of the things that he speaks of. In his search for wisdom, in his search for meaning, uh, he again brings some familiar things to our minds in the world that we live as we see the pursuits of men. Some of these things are, are fresh on our minds, depending on what we know about what's going on in the world or what's going on in our nation. Tonight we're looking at the subjects of oppression, of envy, loneliness, disappointment, uh, things that we are indeed familiar with. And again, the situations that he brings up or the examples that Solomon brings to our minds really does touch home. It really does pierce to our hearts as we consider these things. And again, this is such a benefit to see this within the Word of God, these things addressed within the Word of God, that we can have an understanding how we are to approach these particular subjects or these particular circumstances. There, there is that, that element that runs through so much of what we have read already of the hopelessness of a life apart from God. As He has taken us and he has shown the emptiness of life apart from God. And he is viewing things really through just the, the lens of just humanity. From the human point of view. And tonight, uh, again, these are, these are some, some dark things that he says. But this, again, is what reminds us of the blessing and the benefit, the hope. That we have in knowing the living God. So as we enter into this, it may again cause um, some various emotions within our within our hearts and minds as we look at some of this. But no matter how despairing that life seems apart from the Lord, it is the opposite for those that are in Christ. And perhaps even seeing it from this perspective may help us to even have perhaps compassion on those who don't know the Lord as we see their state and we see the reality in which they truly live, regardless of the things that they may say. So I pray that this would have a great benefit in our own lives 
and that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within our hearts to allow us to see even more of the reality of the lives of the lost. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we read this chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet, <clears throat> a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king with no long, who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will now come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come into your presence once more, and we ask that you would guide our thoughts even as we see uh, the despairing lives of those without you, Father, let us be so appreciative of the life that you give us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. May our hearts, Father, be merciful and compassionate towards those who don't know you as we see the reality in which they live. May our hearts desire to reach out even more so and to praise you for all the, the joy that you give us in our lives and the peace and the fulfillment. Guide our thoughts and may your word accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Again, there's, there's a number of things that Solomon speaks to his readers about. This is, this is 
Solomon taking us on a journey, perhaps, as he's walking through life and he's seeing all that he sees, he's writing it down, he's expressing his feelings on it. Tonight he turns to the subject of oppression. Oppression is something that we are familiar with. We, we understand the whole concept of, of oppression, whether it's on a massive scale or perhaps a smaller one. One writer had said that oppression involves cheating others of something, defrauding them, robbing them, advancing themselves without regard to the other's rights or needs. And there are actually a number of passages in the scripture that are very adamant not to defraud your brother in Leviticus and Deuteronomy many other passages within God's word that this is a serious crime against humanity. Now we can look at this as uh, something on a, a massive scale that Solomon perhaps has in mind. Those that have power are oppressing those who don't have power, who perhaps are weaker. And he says that he saw the tears of them. And they had no one to comfort them. This is a miserable life in which they find themselves, especially under the rule of a dictator, for example. Uh, you take a number of the ones that we know within history, just within the 20th century, under communist regimes, and you see the mass murders that are carried out by them, and the fear that the people live in, and the, the poverty that the people live in, and yet the ones who are at the top have everything. They have the wealth, they have all the food that they want, they have all the pleasure that they want. And yet for those that are being oppressed, there's no one to comfort them. Solomon sees, and he says, he sees their tears, and, and no one's there to offer them a word of encouragement, perhaps, or to deliver them from it. This is the life in which they live. Many still live in this kind of, of oppression. Some oppressed because of ethnicities, some oppressed just because they can There's no one reason why another would oppress his fellow neighbor or human being. You think of the miserable existence. Think of, think of human trafficking, for example. Think of how horrible of, of a crime that that is against humanity. Or sin, how grievous a sin what kind of wickedness that you would kidnap little children and then you would raise them up in order to be pleasure for other people? Who's there to comfort them? As, as we see their tears, perhaps, or hear of their tears. And this isn't something that is so far removed from us. I mean, this is something that goes on in the nation. Human trafficking. Again, as I have shared with you before, there is that one organization that is called Fight the New Drug that is all about uh, getting people away from pornography. And it interviews those that were in uh, pornography for many years. It was, it was incredible. The number of women that they interviewed who were in that industry for a number of years and they didn't even realize that they had been trafficked because it was at a, such a young age that they were introduced to it or put into it. I mean, this is a miserable existence 
to live for the pleasure of someone else, to be violated in that kind of a way. Oppression is something we understand as simply just viewing that subject alone of human trafficking. What does Solomon say about those that are oppressed? He says, I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. What's he saying? It's better off to be dead than to live in that kind of an existence. And he goes even further to say, even more than those two. He says, but better off than both of them is the one who never existed, who never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. This is something dark that he is presenting here. He's saying it's better to have never even existed than to live and either know about this kind of oppression or to have experienced this kind of oppression. That is very despairing. I congratulated the dead. You're better off. You're better off being dead than living in that kind of a situation. That's what he says. There's, and again, as he's moving through a lot of these things, there's not really any end note here that, that he ends on a, a joyful note, rather. But the question does come. I mean, what are we to think of this? What are we to think of this kind of oppression that goes on within the world, not just with human trafficking, but with dictators? And they're always going to be there. There's always going to be oppression. How are we to view it? What are we to think of it? Do we think of it as just meaningless? It's, it's a necessary evil that just happens to be within the world. How do you get rid of it? What do you do? Human trafficking is something that many are trying to fight against, but they're, they're still there. And they do so in order to further their own self at the expense of another. Where they can get rich, get what they want at the expense of someone else. That's a miserable time, a despairing existence. What's the point of it all? And he ends on that dark note, it's, it's better not to have existed. You know, Job says similar words. Elijah says something somewhat similar in the sense that he just says, Oh Lord, take my life now. It's better off to be dead than to live. You know, those, those thoughts are not really um, too far removed as well. You know, have you ever had thoughts like that? It's better off to just be dead than to live and to continue in your toil and your pain and your suffering? We'll come back to that. But Solomon moves from that, and he says not only does he see the oppression that is in the world, but he also sees the envy. I mean, that's really what he's referring to there in verses 4 to 6. He's, he's talking about envy. 
I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. And this is vanity, striving after the wind. Envy is, again, these are familiar things. These are not things that we have to think very hard about. What kind of examples can we come up with in our own minds to, to kind of connect with what Solomon is talking about here? He's talking about two people who are laboring really against the other, trying to be in a rivalry with the other. They want to do the work of their hands, and they want to make something of themselves in comparison to somebody else. I have seen that the labor, that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. You know, I think one thing that I had thought of as, as I was looking at that passage of Scripture were people that I knew, people I still know, people that you know in your own lives who do nothing but continually work and labor. They are miserable, and yet they still do it because they want to be, they, they want to be somebody, I guess is the one way to put it. They want to be able to look at people perhaps in their past whether it was people they went to school with or just family in their past, and they want to say, this is what I made of myself even though I'm miserable. Look at what I have in comparison to you, and yet they're miserable. We know folks that have that kind of a mentality, have a lot of love for them, and yet, the jobs that they choose, the career paths that they choose, are not at all what is enjoyable to them. And yet, they keep moving into bigger houses, getting more fancy cars, in order to come across as one who has made it, who is successful. And yet, they are very unhappy. They're unhappy with their jobs. They're unhappy with the way that their lives are going because they have to work all the time to maintain what it is that they have. What kind of an existence is that? And yet they do it out of envy and comparing themselves to another. I have to have what they have. So I got to work. I got to keep working because I want them to see what I've made myself. Yeah, I remember, and this is going to sound kind of funny, I suppose, but I remember when I turned 30, not too long ago. And it was, uh, you know, at 30 was like the first time for me that you, you sit down and you go, what, what have I done with my life? Okay, my 20s are over, 20s are out. What have I done with my life? And as, as ridiculous as it was, it was something that bothered me. And I began to, what am I doing? Well, what kind of, what have I done with my life? You have those questions and then you think to yourself, no, oh, the Lord has truly blessed me. And I have nothing to complain about. But those thoughts come. Though is it uh, this coming year I'll turn 40. It won't be as bad as 30. But I'm going to turn 40. 
But I can say that throughout the rest of my 30s, I've not had the same thoughts that I did when I turned 30. I didn't look at other people and say, there were other people that I went to school with, whether they're successful or whatever, and look at them and say, I remember you, and I didn't too much care for you then. But I'm happy for you, whatever you've made with yourself, and I'm very happy with the lot that God has given me. And I, have, I can't honestly say that throughout my 30s, so far, that that's, that's been my mentality. I don't, it doesn't bother me as it once did to, to say, man, I wish I had maybe that house or I had that kind of a car or we had this kind of financial situation or whatever. It's, it's just not like, it's, it's just not like that as those thoughts were when I first turned 30. But why do people do that? It's out of envy. Why do you want to keep working a job that you don't like in order to maintain this big house and these fancy cars? It's not for the enjoyment of it, obviously, so why do you do it? Because you have to either prove yourself to somebody else to be in their particular class of people or to let other people know of the success that you have. But what does he say? It's vanity. And it's striving after the wind. There's nothing in it. There's, no, there's nothing of value, really, in having those things. But yet we seek after them. And you actually have two extremes here. Not only do you have those that, that will work and work and work and work and work in order to have all of this fancy stuff, then you have the other extreme in which people don't do anything. And this is vanity. This is striving after the wind. He's talking about <clears throat> the fool who folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. He doesn't do anything. And this is similar language that Solomon uses as well. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come, will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. He's talking about the lazy. Ones who won't do anything. So there's two extremes that he speaks of here. Those that want to work and those that don't. I was listening to Alistair Begg and he had, he had brought up a... Um, a scenario of, of a, a dad who goes into his son's room and he's telling his son, you know, you're, you're never going to get anywhere in life if you keep doing this and you keep doing this. And you have the son who's sitting there with his long hair listening to his music and he's like, I don't want to be like you. I don't want to do the things that you do. I don't want to have the job that you do and would rather do nothing. Made me think of a Twisted Sister video, but very similar to that but you have two extremes one who doesn't want any of that he doesn't want anything out of life really would rather be lazy and leech off of the others who won't do anything with his hands but really verse 6 and as we even work through the rest of it really verse 6 is where we come back what is the goal what is it that we should be striving for? And he says in verse 6, 
One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. I can have two fists full of everything. And it takes all my labor, everything in me to keep it going, to have it. Or I can have one hand full of peace of mind and rest, tranquility. What is it that should be the goal? You can have all of these other things and be miserable. Or you can be content with what you do have and have tranquility of mind. What is it you're striving for? So he talks about oppression. He talks about envy. And he talks about loneliness. He said, then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without dependent, having neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Now he's giving a scenario of a man who is so self-centered. He doesn't have anybody. All he does is work, toil, and his eyes are never satisfied. His goal is not tranquility of mind. His goal is more wealth, more wealth, more wealth. That's what his desire is. That's where his heart is. And he doesn't have anyone else in his life that he can even give his heart to because it's so consumed with wealth. He doesn't ask the question, I have all of this stuff. I have all of this wealth and to whom, to whom can I share it with? He has deprived himself is the idea because he was so consumed in this pursuit in his life. That is an empty existence as well. You have no one. The eye is not satisfied, never content, wants more and more. There was a character on a movie the other night that I was watching, and he said something to the effect of because he was conquering all of these lands and he was really alone because he was such a... a horrendous ruler, dictator. And he says to himself, or he says to one of his commanders, he says, the very things that I need to do will take me two lifetimes. Because that's all he had in his mind, was more and more, and he had no one, no one else. And that's, and this isn't just referring to, you know, having a significant other as far as a spouse, but anyone in your life to whom you can share with. There's no one. This is, this is giving us a description of someone who is just utterly alone. And in one sense, they don't, they don't even realize. Because they're so consumed. Imagine going through life that you're so self-centered with everything that you're doing. that You have no one. Will this come to to a head for a person in this way? Absolutely, because at some point, the work is going to stop. Whether it's because of of physical ailments, perhaps, or whatever. They want to build their bigger barns, have everything in it, and then take their rest. And who's going to be there? 
No one. That too is a very despairing existence. That you have no one. You don't even have the Lord. You're living, you're, you're living for yourself. But the contrast to that begins in verse 9, that two are better than one. Now, what he says in these, these next few verses are not in reference to having a, a spouse or significant other. It's really talking either, either about having a business partner kind of a relationship or just having a companion friendship. That's what's in view here. Not marriage, not, not any of that. He says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Now, here's the benefit of some of these things that he's referring to here. here here's some of the benefit. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So there's benefit here of companionship, of friendship. And those are some of the things that he's touching on here. Again, it could be within a business, you know, a business venture together or just talking about having companionship throughout this life. Of the benefit, of the strength that is there and, and the enduring life that comes with that. Having people in your life, having community. And just think if two, if this is in reference to the benefit of having two people together. And then he says... Speaking of three, that a cord of three strands is not easily torn. Think of a community of people that are there with you, to go through life with you, to help you through this life. No man, that's the thing about the Christian faith, is that no man is an island unto himself. That is not the intent. And, and that's the sad reality, too, that we see is that you have people that have the, the, the outlook, perhaps, or the attitude that it's just me and Jesus. And yet, there is so much more that Christ has benefited us with as the church, as the, as the community of believers, which is that very thing. Having a community of people there with you. To love you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to come alongside you when you need someone. You have people to turn to. And that is one of the graces of God that He has extended to you. That you don't have to go through this life Alone. There is great benefit to having people in your life. Whether it's in this particular example of business or just life. What situations have come up in your own life that you've had people there? Had people there, maybe not to say much to you because of whatever the circumstance is, but to cry with you, to hug you, to try to comfort you. Have you had times in which you had no one? If you've had times in your life in which you had no one, and then other times in your life in which you had people around you, you, you see the benefit, you know the benefit. 
You, you, you know what kind of a blessing that that is to have people in your life. Who are not just people that, that you're simply acquainted with, but people who desire to be involved in your life. You know, it's one of those things where we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, we've had a number of conversations with people throughout the years of us being a church, and we would say, hey, if something's going on in your life, you know, let us know. You know, we, that we can come alongside you, that we can help you, that we can pray for you. If it's just a matter that you don't want to disclose what it is, then just say, hey, I need prayer. Well, I just I don't want to be a bother to you. I don't want to be a bother to this one. Or I don't want to be a bother to that one. I don't want to, to be a burden. And, and it's, it's an interesting kind of scenario because you're like, no, I want you to be a burden. I want to come alongside you. This is a genuine uh, desire. I want to help. I want to come alongside. I want to encourage. It's not a burden to have people in your life that would come alongside you. That's called friendship. That's being a faith family. You share with each other. You help one another. That's what we're supposed to do. And having that love for one another, it's not just a, a duty or a task. It's, it's having love for one another that you, des- that you desire to do that. You don't want to leave anyone behind and leaving them in despair. You want to s- lift them up. Hey, you have people here. I want to be an encouragement to you. I want to be a comfort to you. What can I do? Can I pray? Do you need something? There is such strength in having people to come alongside you. No one is an island unto themselves. This isn't a situation as it is with the man that we were just referring to of living a life looking out for number one. That, that kind of an attitude doesn't exist, is not supposed to exist within the Christian faith. It's looking out for each other. And loving each other. And there is great benefit in having people there in your life. With the things that have, have gone on either in my own life or in, in things that have gone on with the church. Where would we be without each other? I needed people in my life during those instances Again, in my own personal life and in the life of what was going on in the church, I needed people, and I am so thankful, so thankful that God placed you all in my life for those very reasons. Because I needed you, and you were there. That's how we are to be, companions. We're to be uh, having that kind of fellowship, that kind of love. And there is great benefit in that. And it's interesting how he just kind of moves through here. But after speaking of that, <clears throat> he, he talks about two particular ones that are coming to the throne. And depending on, again, commentators, they're not... Very sure if this is maybe a personal note from 
Solomon concerning his own reign or just in general of what he is observing. So he talks about a poor yet wise lad who is better than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. The king has been on his throne for a number of years and he's getting in his old age and now he don't listen to anyone. You can't give him instruction. You can't help give him guidance. He's stuck in his way. And it reminds me of that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's a very poor attitude. But it's one that is often said. We should always be learning and growing and desiring to learn. Never thinking that we've arrived. But that's, that's who this old king is. He doesn't take instruction. And he's saying that the lad who is poor, poor in his own kingdom in which he's going to take over the kingdom. He was once poor and now he is going to replace the older king. And he says, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. As the older king is getting ready to come off the throne, whether it's because of the end of his life or it's just that time that they are forcing him off the throne in order to replace him, there is that joy and that excitement that this guy let us down, but this guy is going to be the one to help us. This guy is the one who's going to to bring about all that this king would not. And so there's that excitement and that celebration when they put him on the throne. But then Solomon says, there is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. They placed all their hope in the new guy because of the disappointment of the older guy. And as this man's reign goes on, then they become unhappy with him. And they look for someone new. This is the disappointment that he's referring to. You know, as the scriptures give us a number of examples um, of the disappointment of, of man, that with man you're always going to be disappointed. You know, it's like, it's, it's like even in our presidential elections. We look at the one guy who's exiting the office and we say, man, he did a bad job. We need somebody new. We need somebody new that's going to be for the American people. And then the new guy comes up. We're all excited. And then a few years in, when's he going to get out of here? Because we need someone, we need somebody new. And it's that vicious cycle over and over again. Why? Because you're putting all your hope in this person who's going to let you down. You're going to be disappointed. And that's been the reality of, of kings that have come and gone. I, I like listening to biographics on uh, YouTube. Every time I'm driving, I usually get on YouTube, not while driving, but before I begin to drive, I get on YouTube, or I have my son to do it if he's with me, and we will listen to biographics. And so this one particular man who has a British accent, so you can listen to him all day, 
he brings up a number of people throughout history, and he, he talks about their life, and he was talking about Caligula. Now, if we know anything about Caligula, he was not at all a good Caesar. But since he had replaced Tiberius, who was before him, who was a, a, a terror to the people, everybody was excited when Caligula came to the throne. And that excitement lasted for a little while. He was doing pretty well. And he ended up getting sick. You know, this is the interesting thing. One thing that they had seen, they seemed to have forgotten, even though Tiberius had killed this man's family, Caligula grew up with Tiberius and seen all the awful, horrendous things that he did and even partook of the same. So, a little while into Caligula's reign, he got sick. He, people thought he was going to die, and so you had a number of the senators that were praying because even they were hopeful of him. So they're praying to their gods, you know, to save him and, and uh, spare his life or take me instead of him. And so then when Caligula starts to get better, he calls those particular senators in. And he says, basically, so I understand that you had prayed to the gods on my behalf that, you know, maybe they take you instead of me. Yes, yes. So when are you going to do it? That was his question. So when are you going to when are you going to do it? And so he forced those men that had prayed to their gods on his behalf, forced them to commit suicide. And there began the decline. So that he only reigned, I think, four years, married a sister, proclaimed himself a god, and so his Praetorian guard ended up murdering him. But they had a lot of hope. And then that hope was dashed to pieces. And it's, it's the same. Maybe not to that particular scale, but there's always disappointment when you put all your hope in man. So with all the disappointments that come in life, with all the, the, the rivalries that come in life, with all the, the loneliness that you see, all the oppression of the wickedness, what are we to do with that? How are we to think of it? What's the point of it all? As Solomon sees all these things under the sun. Again, it really goes back to getting through life and having that tranquility of mind that he refers to in verse 6. That mind of rest can only come as a result of knowing the living God. Because a life apart from Him is hopeless, it's depressing, it's despairing, it's nothing but rivalry and violence and anger and bitterness that cause you to live a life even more miserable. What is it that brings peace of mind in a world full of all of this? It's Christ. That's why he says, My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. He came to give a life that is joyful, more abundantly lived. 
This is what Christ brings to his people, that even though maybe you experience some of these very things, this isn't to say that you're not going to experience it, but in the midst of your experiencing these kind of hardships and pains and sufferings, you have that tranquility of mind, knowing the living God, and the living God providing and extending grace to you to endure whatever this is that is going on in your life. A number of those girls I was telling you about earlier that were sex trafficked, some of them converted to Christ. And now they live a life that is hopeful and joyful in Him after all the horrible things that happened to them. How can that be? Because in spite of what we have occur in this life, the true and the living God is the one who, who gives us exactly what we need to endure and to still call upon him in faith and have confidence in him and to rejoice before him in spite of our circumstances. That is a supernatural act that God performs in his people. Apart from him, it's a miserable life. And that's why, that's why we, we take so much for granted every day we don't consider the life that, that is apart from the Lord. Maybe we don't think of it. Maybe we don't consider it. Or, and honestly, this is no joke. Perhaps we can't even remember what it was like to be an unbeliever. But this is the life now that we live. We have pain in our life. We come alongside each other. We help one another. We encourage one another. And we have joy in our hearts because of who God has graced us with in our life. Though we go through pain and suffering, we read God's word and we can have that, that peace seeing the sovereign God who is, who is controlling all things in our life. And it's not meaningless. Everything that happens in our life is not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's, it's, it, has, it has purpose to the living God. And he will do whatever it is that brings him the most glory and use us to do it. And so there are things in which we can, we can perceive the world. We, we, we have the right perception of things that we can have joy in the midst of pain. And we can have joy in the midst of an empty life because we're not alone. Even though we might be alone, we're not alone. Because we have the true and the living God with us. Perhaps some things may happen in life in which you are isolated, not by your own choice. What are you going to do? You have the true and the living God who is with you every moment. That brings comfort. And that's why you can get through whatever it is that life brings. Because his grace is sufficient. Therein lies our hope and our peace and our comfort. Solomon talks about some um, depressing things for sure. But as we see these things, I pray that it makes us even more appreciative of the life that we have in Christ. Not to take it for granted, but to thank God every day. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you allowed me to know you. Thank you that you've granted me your word in which I can see the reality of things and be even more confident in you. You've been blessed, dear friends, not to live this kind of life. But I do pray that you see how, how empty that it is, that even though you have many out here who say horrible things and whatever, 
What kind of life are they living? An empty one. Perhaps that will move within our hearts to want to reach out to them or have compassion and mercy on them as much as we're able. And there is, of course, more that Solomon is going to take us through uh, in the next chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters. And we will, of course, save that till the next time we are together. Let's stand, if you would, and we will be dismissed in prayer. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again for all that we learn through your word. And thank you for this portion of your word. There is so many wicked things that go on in this world. Uh, but we, we thank you that you have delivered us from that kind of a life. That you, though, though we endure hardships and sufferings, Father, you give us the ability to be content. Not to keep striving after something that we'll never lay hold of. But to be content in you. Thank you for that life. Thank you for that peace and that joy that Christ has provided. That Christ has gifted us with through the Spirit of God. Father, we often take for granted this life. We don't consider others and perhaps we don't consider the blessings of each day that we have. But Father, bring these things back to our remembrance. Allow us to appreciate it. Allow that that gratefulness to grow in us. And may it have an effect on us to be merciful towards those that don't know you. Father, we praise you for all things that you've granted to us in your son. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.